Good evening. Before I start into tonight's lesson, I want to take this opportunity to uh, address the uh, preparations for our class quarter next quarter. We're setting up a series of teams for each of the classes. We're, today's May 1st, we're two months away from trying to implement that uh, in the third quarter this year. So for the most part, we have the, the classes covered. Uh, now there are, is room for others. Uh, so we're kind of going to embark on the uh, next phase, which is uh, the teams within themselves are going to decide when each, each we're going to pair up and when, when, are, when are you going to teach, what quarter are you going to teach. Uh, secondly, I'm going to circulate uh, a list over the, I have a lot of files on my computer. I have a lot of versions of the grade levels of each of your respective children. And more often than not, I get several of those wrong. Uh, so, and I can think I've got them promoted for this year, but I actually used the previous year to promote them to the wrong year. And you know, your child may be in third grade, but I've got them listed as first grade. So I'm going to circulate that to make sure I've got everybody listed in the right grade level so we get the right apportionment of the, of the uh, classes. Is this on? Yeah. And then finally, we're going to also include the encouragement phase. We have the teams of teachers there, but we're also going to have the encouragement phase where we may look out and reach out to people who, who may not have taught too much in the past or have tried to teach. And so we want to encourage people to try to take an opportunity to be a part of one of the teams. Uh, so that you can learn from those who are experienced. So that you can take the opportunity to see these children trying to soak up God's word and to take the opportunity uh, to teach. So I just wanted to give you that update before we started into tonight's lesson. So tonight, in the span of the time that we have, I'm going to cover all human emotions known to man. <laughs> not, not possible, not possible. Um, so we're going to talk about controlling our emotions in the fear of the Lord. I'll give you, uh, I'm going to take uh, the approach that we often use in scientific presentations. I'm going to give it all to you in an outline form, and then we're going to proceed through the outline rather than being some type of dramatic reveal as we go along. Uh, so I, do I need to use that or that? All right. So when we talk about this this evening, we're going to talk about we do have emotions and we can't ignore them or pretend to be impervious. Uh, we're going to talk about the works of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit. Which ones, which ones of the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit involve emotions and which ones should we be trying to control? We're going to talk some about temper, jealousy, envy, pride, impatience. We're going to talk about the fool, specifically the fool as is often used. Uh, one reference I said, Saul said, the fool is referred to 40 different times in the book of Proverbs. And then it, we're also going to talk a little bit of how you respond when you have lost some level of control of your emotions. Now, as I said, and even some of the other uh, lectures include other emotions, so I, I, we're going to mainly focus on anger, but we're going to talk a little about emotions in general and how we, how we should view them. Uh, so specifically, I will not be covering directly love, hate, which is the topic of next month, and then our speech. Although it's, uh, you know, it's ironic in my studies, it's, it, 
it's often that our emotions get revealed through what we say, right? Not just in our actions, and, and it's probably 50-50, uh, a little bit of both. What you say can reveal what your emotions are. Uh, so that, that's a topic, I think, two months from now. So those are future topics of the lecture. So uh, I'm going to focus more on kind of the concept of temper and anger in the context of, of, um, of emotions in general and, and, and the concept of emotions and, and controlling them. Pretending we are impervious. I don't believe in using multisyllable words without defining them so that you can understand. I just think sometimes good big words help make a point. Impervious, the word impervious means not allowing entrance or passage. So that could be uh, anything. That could be uh, a liquid. So you may have a, a, a bottle. You want a, your bottle of water to be impervious so your, bottle, so your water doesn't leak out. But also you could apply, or not capable of being damaged or harmed, something like a shield or, or the ultimate shield or the ultimate armor that cannot be harmed. Uh, but in, in terms of emotions, it's showing no emotions or being unaffected by emotions, being blank, restrained, or impassive. And that is not a biblical concept. Uh, we have emotions. We are human. We have emotions that come that uh, uh, are part of our body, that are part of our our psychology, that are part of our makeup. Uh, God demonstrates emotions. Christ demonstrated emotions. So, um, one of the first things to acknowledge is that we do have them, and they do show up, and that they do affect us. And at times, we can be under the impression that we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to show our emotions. We're not supposed to display our emotions. We're not, not and, and to some extent, not to, ha not to have. Not to, because sometimes showing our emotions is showing weakness or showing, showing our emotions and showing our vulnerability. And we don't like to be exposed and we don't like to be um, divulge the, what's, on our, what's on our heart, as we just sang about, you know, the rock of my heart, which should be Christ and God. But we do have them. So we, and if we do, try to be impervious, to say that nothing is going to get out, nothing is going to come in, that is going to have consequences. That's going to bubble over somewhere. That's going to show up somewhere else. So you, uh, one of the most important things we can do regarding emotions in the first place is acknowledge that we have them. We have a whole range of them. We can look at children and say that there's a whole range of emotions, right? And, and sometimes we think that growing up is, is removing emotions from our life. But that's not, that's not true. We accept the joy and the happiness and their sadness and sorrow. But there's others we try to kind of bottle up a little, and sometimes a little too much. But we are supposed to try to control our emotions. But as I said, we can see with, kid, with children, they can be one minute crying, and then the next minute they can be happy and laughing. And the next minute, they could be angry. And, and we ourselves, we try to mature as we grow up so that we can understand when those emotions apply and when those emotions are improper and when we've taken those emotions too far. Uh, Christians are not to deny emotions, become impervious. And we shouldn't deny those, those emotions that include those that could lead us to making sinful choices. But we are taught to deny ourselves. In Luke 9, 23, If anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Part of denying self is learning how to control some of our emotions, some of our emotions that could lead us to make decisions that would be contrary to God's will. Some that would, uh, us to make decisions that would put the focus on self rather than Christ. Um, in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 27, it says, Therefore I put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Implying that the emotions of anger and wrath could give place to the devil, could give an opportunity for the devil to plant a seed in your heart. To that gives way and gives rise to a, a sinful choice. In John 16, 16 through 22, this, uh, Jesus is talking about when he would not be there. And the emotions that the, the apostles would feel during that time. And he says, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And so he's speaking of him leaving, and he's going to leave. And they're like, what is he talking about? He's going to leave. But he was just speaking of his crucifixion, but he's actually speaking also of his resurrection. But he gives this example here in following verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. She has stress, sorrow, fear of the things that are about to happen in the process of giving labor. Uh, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So there's emotions in all aspects of our life. There's emotions. Uh, uh, and in Romans chapter 12, verses 15 through 18, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not, let your mind, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Even that phrase, do not be wise in your own opinion, has some emotions uh, stuck into it. The concept of pride and selfishness. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So these just three different examples of where emotions are, are and even extreme emotions are, are spoken about, and how they can happen, and how we, we have to acknowledge them. We have to acknowledge those things that are of sorrow, those things that are of joy, because we experience all of those things. Uh, but at the same time, there's examples here where we uh, be angry and do not sin, where we have to control that. So it acknowledges that we can get angry. We can be displeased at something, and we'll talk about that. But then after that point of being angry, we can make a choice after that of whether or not we're going to have that in control or we're going to let that get out of control and proceed to the concept of wrath. And wrath has a wide series of... of uh, um, examples of what that could be, and we're going to look at several different examples. Um, and then the idea of living peaceably with all men and not proceeding to wrath, which is in letting the vengeance be with the Lord. 
So here's a list of the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. And that's in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. And I draw your attention to the, to the end of that scripture where it says, and, to, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Passions and desires. Uh, that's what we've crucified. The passions and desires. Those, that, those words in, of themselves have emotions connected with them. And we'll talk about those in the context of the fruits of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Let us not become conceited. Conceited in and of itself. Pride. Provoking one another. Envying one another. Verse 25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. So we have all these lists that are in Galatians 5. This particular list is in order. So for the works of the flesh, we have adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, parties. So it's when I got to here, I was like, you know, we could spend a whole quarter just on emotions because so many of these things have an emotional component stuck with them. I was like, okay, well, that's for the works of the flesh. Well, let's look at the fruits of the Spirit. Love, self-control, forgiveness, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, peace, caring for others, fellowship, truth, satisfaction, abundant life, soul-minded fellowship. Those two. They have so many emotions that are there. So one of my questions, first questions is, um, so out of these, I kind of group these into different types of emotions. So adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. You could qualify as emotions of lust or of passion. You have idolatry and sorcery. It can be almost, and he's like, superstition? I don't think of that as an emotion. Well, kind of the opposite of idolatry and sorcery would be faithfulness, faithfulness to God's teaching. And so if you're not willing to be faithful to God, or acknowledge God as the one and only true God and follow after His, His teaching and His instructions, but yet you still have these, this desire within you to look to some God or to look to some superstition that's going to give you some extra luck, like throwing salt over your shoulder or to, you know, be interested in, I don't know, voodoo from, from New Orleans, or there's, you name it, there's all kinds of different, man has a desire in them to have some type of higher being, some type of higher cause, some type, and that's within us, and it's, it's close to, so you can take superstition, because if it's not, then, then, then what is it, you know? Uh, your desire to find something beyond, but so if you're not going to acknowledge God, you're going to acknowledge something. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, all of those have a root in anger. Uh, selfish ambition, ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy. All of those could also some have some anger, but the anger, but they also seem, tend to have pride and selfishness involved with them. So all of these are emotions that we feel as parts of the works of the flesh. Murders are, is often a combination of anger and wrath and hate, and then drunkenness parties, the desire to indulge, the desire to, to take part. So, um, you know, we're talking about uh, different teenage, teenage uh, challenges in the high school class right now, and today we were, we were talking a little bit about vices, uh, different things, and the, the lesson was uh, 
was originally about smoking, but we can talk about drinking and other types of vices. And one, I asked the class, what is, what is the one thing, what, what, why do people want to do that if we know that they can be harmful, if we know they can be addictive? And one of their first responses is because other people are doing it, because people are, you want to see what it does. The desire to indulge, the desire to partake, to let go, to not be in control. Uh, so that in and of itself. So which one should we be controlling? And so when I first thought of this question, I was like, well, it's obvious. The one's on the left, the works of the flesh. And we could talk about it, the emotions that are involved on, on, on the fruits of the Spirit. But what else? Oh, so lust and passion, superstition, anger, pride and selfishness, anger and hate, desire, desire to indulge. We have to work at controlling those. But there can be situations where we also kind of dilute ourselves in, in thinking we have a fruit of the Spirit, but we actually don't. Um, one of the examples I thought of was in Jeremiah 8, 11. It says, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, or superficially, saying, peace, peace, which would be a fruit of the Spirit, but there is no peace. So this is Jeremiah saying, the, the priests think that, they have consoled, that they're consoling the people, but they're really not. They're really not doing anything to help the issue. So they're preaching peace, peace. You can think of, you know, you can think of the example where uh, Jesus says, you know, you did all of these things, but you didn't do them in my authority. You did all these things that we would think were fruits of the Spirit when you, you know, uh, you could have many different things where you can think you're working on a, a fruit of the Spirit, but actually you've let that go too far. You're deluding yourself. You're actually not following God's Word. You're not following God's instruction. And it's turned into actually some form of pride, some form of, of I think I've interpreted better than God can. And, and uh, it, it becomes actually a work of the flesh. So you have to put both of these, whether it's the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit, into the definition that God gives us. Uh, and so it's, it's, there's just a wide range of things that we could talk about with respect to controlling our emotions. But I wanted to focus about... Um, so in the concept of this, where does the fear of the Lord come in? So the best example I could give for that was a, a passage from Proverbs. We're here in the middle in verse 16. This is Proverbs 15, 14 through 18. Here in the middle it says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Right, so the fear, that concept, the fear of the Lord is it. But as we read through it, Proverbs is a series, in many ways, is a series of statements. So they're opposing statements. There's this to consider, or you can consider this kind of an opposite. Um, so let's read through this. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of merry heart has a continual feast. So here we have a, a, an emotion of, uh, this is essentially the days of the afflicted are evil, but those who have a merry heart has a continual feast. It's kind of a perspective, an outlook statement. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better to have a little with the fear of the Lord, acknowledging Him, acknowledging uh, the precepts of His that you need to follow, rather than great treasure with lots of trouble in your life. Better is the dinner of herbs where love is than the fatted calf with hatred. So better to have love than hate. 
A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger uh, allays contention. So a man who is wrathful, a man who has anger that proceeds to wrath, stirs up strife, and that is the nature of his life. But he who is slow to anger, which is a passage which uh, referred to in James 1 earlier, uh, the same concept, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. So all around this concept of the fear of the Lord, there are these different aspects of emotion that we need to take in, 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 an inventory of. An inventory of which side of these statements are you on? Are you someone who is better with a little, with the fear of the Lord, or someone who has great treasure and all the trouble that comes with it? Are you someone who has the heart of him who has understanding and who seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness? Do you have understanding or are you foolishness? Are you a man of strife or are you a person who is slow to anger? What side of the emotion are you on? What, what, what portion of the emotion, where is your control? Do you have the anger under control or do you, are you a wrathful person? So I also want to talk about these three words. Temper, anger, and wrath. We often say, say whether, whether a person has a temper or not, but a temper is actually, you know, even today, it's, it's the tendency to be of a certain type of mood, state of mind. We may someone say, refer to someone who has a temper, but we're actually saying more like this man has a quick temper or someone who is quick to become angry. And so temper is actually, we can, we can temper ourselves, which means to uh, put ourselves under a control and put ourselves into a better state of mind. Uh, we talk about someone's temperament uh, and how they're, what kind of their outlook on life. And there should be the temperament of a Christian versus the temperament of someone who's willing to follow the world and to follow after man. Anger, the feeling of the strong feeling of displeasure, hostility, hostility or antagonism towards something or someone. Uh, We've already spoken of Ephesians 4.26, but it's good for us to turn over there. Uh, that was in the... Um, where it says, <coughs> starting in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. So be angry and do not sin. So that do not sin says you can be angry and, and for different reasons, and then not let that progress. Or how you progress can be sinful, but it doesn't have to be sinful, is what that statement implies. Also in James 1, Starting in verse 19, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. I think it's interesting. We'll have a lesson in a couple months on, on speech, but it's put right there in between. Uh, swift to hear, slow to speak, watching what you say. And then that next thing is slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So wrath is an important concept. It's not just anger. It is anger that is combined with the desire to harm or strike out. Now, many times there is wrath is, is connected with physical violence. And if you look at some of the definitions, they will include that it includes violence. But there are, in, the, in the Bible, there are two types of wrath. There is wrath of God, 
such as the consequences of sin. And there's an example here in Romans chapter 12. So it's important for us to acknowledge this. We're not necessarily, we're ta not talking about our emotions in the con in wrath, anger and wrath in the context of how God has wrath. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Uh, we've, uh, okay, yeah. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of men. If it possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Belovedly, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, but I also wanted to go, I believe it's here. Yes, actually, I had intended, turn over to Romans chapter 1, but it refers to the wrath of God. Got those switched. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are now are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like a corruptible man, and the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. So that concept of the wrath of God as the consequences of sin as to what... And so this, this covers the New Testament and the Old Testament. So many times we see the wrath of God executed upon different nations for their level of evil. And it was times that there were different times when their evil had not reached a point where God had executed judgment upon them. And then later it did. We see the wrath of God upon the Israelites themselves over the course of their history at different times when they blatantly disregarded God uh, at, at specific times in the wilderness or, or over time when they failed and they went and worshiped the other gods uh, during the periods of the judges and they fell away from God or even during the periods of the kings and the divided kingdom and the different wicked kings that we had. So there's that type of wrath from God. But there's also the type of anger that leads to enraged sin. And there's a wide range. Genesis 4, what happens there? Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Proverbs 19.9. Let's turn there. Nineteen nineteen. sorry. A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. For if you rescue him, you will have to do it again. So that a man of great wrath, a man who, who sows anger to the point of dissensions of, or, or being violent or being in some way striking out, uh, causing harm. And, it, and, and this, this passage actually implies that it will consume it. If you rescue him, if you rescue him from whatever he has done, you will have to do it again. Because he's been consumed by that wrath. He doesn't have it in control. Uh, 
Anger that leads to enraged sin is also mentioned as a part of a, it's a, it's a very serious thing. If you look back over into the uh, New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3.3 and Titus 1.7, we'll look at those real quick. They are listed as uh, in the qualification of elders, meaning if there is a person who is given to wrath or given to outburst of anger, then they would not be qualified to serve as an elder. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And then just a couple of pages over in Titus, uh, 1 verse 7, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent. So there's not quick-tempered, meaning not quick to get angry. And then secondly, there's not violent, which would be wrath, not one who is willing to, to take his anger to the level of, of physical altercation. And so... Why is that listed? Why is that counseled? It's counseled in, in the list for the, the qualifications of elders, and it's listed many different times in many different ways through the book of Proverbs, which we'll look at here a little bit later. But why is that? It's because it's something that is within our nature. We have a tendency to get upset. We have a tendency to react to things that will cause us some form of aggravation, displeasure, uh, some form of hostility. And it's that emotion that we have to be willing to control. We can let that go too far. Now, let, and the other thing, don't let that be confused with godly anger, right? Don't let that be confused with God's concept of, of anger and wrath that He, because God is perfect. God is the author of good. So, uh, and sometimes we can mask our anger and, and our emotion, that emotion, as being indignant for God, when it actually it's, it's our own selfish anger. Now, we can, we can display at times godly anger and react in the right way, and we'll try to show some examples of that as well. Strong feeling of displeasure. So, where does anger originate from? So, um, just to emphasize again, the righteous, God in Christ and his disciples, the right, righteous indignation. If we turn over to Mark chapter 11. This is when Jesus came to the temple and noticed that they were, they were selling things in the temple. Starting in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of money of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wages through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it. This is interesting. You have a righteous anger of God, and then you have a reaction of the scribes and Pharisees, which they had anger. They heard it and sought that they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Uh, so they, were, they sought, sought to, to, to uh, get rid of him, but their anger was more out of pride, selfishness, uh, impatience of willing to li listen to them, 
They, they, there's no way that this man from Galilee could be the Christ. There's no way that this man could know more than we do. So it became their anger, his righteous anger, anger as opposed to their uh, self-righteous anger. We have an example in, in Acts chapter 8. We won't go there. That's the example when Simon the sorcerer wanted to have the gift of imparting the Holy Spirit. And, asked the, and they said, you know, no. You're not gonna, you're not, we're not going to give it to you, and you should ask for you should. Get down on your knees and ask God for forgiveness right now. They were upset. They were angry. But they turned that into righteous anger and telling him, you have no right to have this, to, to get this by, by means of earthly gain. That it, it should be done as, as, a, uh, as, a matter, as a means to prove that God is with us and as God is, that we are teaching uh, that we are the followers of God. Examples of anger that leads to man's wrath. We won't turn to all of these, but there's a couple that I would specifically like to turn to. We know the story of Moses and his impatience. When he was told, when he was told in Numbers chapter 20 that he would, would speak to the rock. But the people were complaining so much. He'd been dealing with them for some time now. And when he came to the moment, in his, in his moment of impatience, he had anger. He's like this foolish generation, and he struck the rock. And as a result of that anger and as a result of his form of wrath, which compared to other forms of wrath may not be that extreme, he was denied the access to the, to, to the promised land. Balaam, I'd like us to turn over. I, I think this is one of, the, one of the most interesting examples of how anger can just uh, have you lose reason. In Numbers chapter 22, we're not going to read the entire passage. So Balaam, who was, who was hired, essentially hired out by Balak to uh, curse the children of God. Uh, did I get that in the right place? Sorry. Numbers 22. Sorry. Uh, We're going to start in verse 24. And the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the, whale, the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So ba Balaam's anger was aroused. And he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? So Balaam in his anger, he's already in a place where he knows he's not doing what he's supposed to do. He knows he cannot speak anything against the children of Israel other than what God tells him to do. But yet he's following after Balak every time. Here, go up on this hill and curse the people of Israel to, to my advantage so that you know, they're not going to crush us. He's like, well, I can't do that. I can only speak what God wants me to. So he knows he's, he's, he knows he's taken this opportunity through greed and through his own pride. And so when this happens to him, uh, and the donkey speaks to him, Balaam doesn't, that's not the moment at which Balaam goes, wait a minute, I should think about what's going on here. It says, uh, and Balaam said to the donkey in verse 29, because you have abused me, I, was, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, 
Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to you to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and he has drawn his sword in his hands, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his head. So Balaam, in the midst of his anger, and in the midst of his wrath, for just something, for he got hurt. And this donkey was not behaving how it was supposed to, and he was frustrated, and he struck the donkey. But the history of the situation is like, Balaam's not even where he should be and doing what he should be. But in the midst of his anger, he can't see it. Until finally the angel of the Lord revealed. I would just love to know what Balaam was thinking after saying, you know, there was a donkey talking to me. And I was so mad, I couldn't see what was happening. He did not, you know, at that point he, was, he had lost the control, you know, of his anger. Saul. We could spend an entire series of lessons. Saul is essentially the manifestation of what anger does to you over time. And, and, and it's different types of anger. Uh, 1 Samuel 13 is when he's waiting for uh, Samuel to come, but he doesn't come, and he's supposed to, they want to offer sacrifices, so Saul goes ahead and offers a sacrifice. And then Samuel comes up to him and says, why did you offer the sacrifice? And he goes, well, the people were here, we needed to go. He almost, he, he lashes back out at Samuel, just from the stress of the situation and from his impatience, and he has an outburst. And then in, in uh, chapter 15, I believe that's where, uh, I want to tell you incorrectly. For Samuel 15, I believe, is when he, uh, he is the king. Yeah, he spares the king of Agag. And Saul says, I've done everything that, you, everything that I was supposed to do, I did. And Samuel's like, well, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And he's like, oh, well, I thought it was good for for sacrifices, and we could, we could offer them to God. And, um, and he also he takes the opportunity in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the sheep and the oxen took the, took the, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and the oxen, best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of the rams. Uh, verse 24, Then Samuel said to Sam, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now please, therefore, pardon me for my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But it was a bit too late. So, but Saul, in that moment of stress, in the moment of impatience, he, wanted to, he kind of had an outburst, like, it wasn't my fault, you know, it was their fault. And then there's the whole story, Samuel 18 through 30, 1 Samuel 18 through 31, which we've been reading. We were reading chapter 30 tonight. Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands. From the moment David... Slew, slew Goliath, Saul was jealous. And that jealousy festered and led to anger against him to the point where he pursued him, pursued him to the point of death. And specifically, I want us to look at, uh, we've, we read this recently, 1 Samuel chapter 22. 
verses 17 through 18. Then the king, this is 1 Samuel 22 and verse 17. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. So his anger, his jealousy, his insecurities, his pride, his stress has turned him to killing priest of the Lord. He has no concept of control of his anger. It has become systematic and it has become a part of his body. And you can see, just see the progression. Saul's choices were just like, well, this is what I had to do. And I, he never took a step back and evaluated. It seems he tried to evaluate, but it was always an evaluation that was a little too late. And his servants refused, but he didn't stop. Verse 18, and the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. In his wrath, Saul had 85 men killed. And that's not the only time. So anger that turns to a man's wrath, anger that then grows into wrath. Naaman and his pride. In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman is an army leader. He has leprosy. And he doesn't have a, a reaction of anger that's something on the scale of what, of what Saul's is. But still, he gets quite angry. He comes and he wants to see Elisha, and Elisha won't even come out to him. He won't even come outside. He sends out a message, tells him to go, tells him to go dip in the Jordan River to clear his leprosy. And verse 11 says, But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana, are the Par Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage, in a sense of wrath, speaking loudly. He was just flat upset, displeased with the situation. And then his servant said, his servants came near to him and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then? when he says to you, wash and be clean. So here we have anger and wrath that then leads to a humble moment by his servants. You contrast that with the life of Saul, where he had growing moments of anger and wrath culminated by the pursuit of David, the desire to have David killed. And in the pursuit of David being killed, he had people slaughtered. And in the end, he knew God wasn't with him. But he kept even trying. We read the other day how he called up the, went and visited the medium and, and called up Samuel to try to see him. Always desperate, out of control. Out of control with his emotion of anger that led to wrath. The concept of anger and wrath is also talked about in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It's specifically addressed as an issue that we, you know, 
has to be for, for, for the forefront of our minds. We interact with people. We are not made to be hermits. We are made to interact with people. We are made to interact with our brethren. But we are human. We have emotions. We have to put them in check. Because if we do not, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount specifically says it affects your relationship with God. Verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of, of uh, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be of danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever has says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever sa says, you fools, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and rem remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the be judged. And the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. But surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Importantly, it says you are angry with his brother without cause. So that is explicitly saying not for a righteous cause. That's out of impatience or greed or jealousy or envy. All of those things that could lead to, I don't like him. I don't like what he did. I don't like what he said to me. And therefore, you're angry. Angry to the point that it's, that it's, it's consuming a portion of your emotions on a regular basis. And he's saying, if that's the case, that hinders your relationship with God. You, sh you can't even go and offer your alms, your prayers to God with that type of lack of control of your emotion. That's how serious this is. The consequence, you know, the Old Testament to me gives so many different examples. There is no emotion, no motive that you can't find in the Old Testament. And, those, and, the, and kind of the stories behind them. Uh, the reasons behind uh, why they're there, those stories. It's the history, but it's also all the principles of the New Testament. You can go to the Old Testament and find one of those people. The example of Peter in Mark chapter 14 at the crucifixion, crucifixion of our Lord. So Christ is on the cross, or soon to be on the cross. And Peter is around while the trial, and they recognize him. And, you know, the Lord said you would deny him three times. And the account in Mark is especially uh, demonstrates the level to which Peter denied. In Mark chapter 14, specifically in verse 71, well, let's read 70 and 71. But he denied again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then he thought about it, and he wept. So this is anger out of the stress of the situation and out of a moment of self-preservation. 
You could probably ascribe that self-preservation motive to Saul many times as well. But in that moment, he became quite, you know, he had a demonstration of wrath, a demonstration of anger. It's not me. And just to emphasize that it's not me, I'm going to curse and swear that it's not me. I have nothing to do with this, Christ. Now, granted, we have to examine ourselves in that same situation, in that same stressful moment, where it's literally life and death. Could we have handled it better? That's an individual question for each of us. But we know that that demonstration of anger and that demonstration of wrath then had an effect because it was pointed out. You remember in the Old Testament when David was pointed out, he was told the story by the prophet Nathan about the shepherd, about the, the, the rich man who took the poor man's, and he was so mad he was ready to go take that rich man and just, you know, give him back tenfold to the poor man. He's like, you are the man. Anger is a, is a, it intensifies our senses. It intensifies our awareness. Because when it becomes important to us, important to us to the moment we can get angry with the right point that is made afterwards, it can help us realize things as well. It can realize that we either have a problem. It can help us realize that we're not moving in the right direction. Unfortunately for a man like Saul, he never really turned back. For Moses, that one time where he displayed anger, he kept asking, can I go in? And God said, no, my judgment is final. Stop asking. Uh, the situation with Naaman, his outburst of anger then had him humbled, and then he was able to be cleansed. All these different ways of whether you can control or not control your anger or what anger can lead to the importance of, uh, of controlling our anger and the fear of the Lord. Who is the fool? As I said, the fool is mentioned at least 40 times in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 28, verses 25 through 26, it says, He who is proud of his heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. A fool is anyone who does not follow the warnings and commands of God a fool lacks wisdom, has no concern for others, does not desire to avoid sin, and brags about his sinful actions. So there's several different instances in the uh, Proverbs where it talks about the fool and wrath. In Proverbs 7, 1 through 4, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the, a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. A fool is a man who is known, a man who know, this particular fool is known for his wrath, for his violence, for his rage. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Jealousy that, you know, combines with wrath. In Proverbs 18, verses 1 through 8, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in, in expressing his own heart, his pride, his rage. Let me tell you what I think about the matter, rather than what God thinks. When the wicked comes, contempt also, and with the dishonor comes reproach. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention and his mouth 
calls for blows, calls for wrath. A fool's mouth is destruction, and his lips are a snare of his soul, are the snare of his soul. So anger that, that sows strife and wrath. The words of a talebearer are tasty trifles, and they go down in the innermost body. So this is an example of where that wrath is often manifested in the things that the fool would say. That anger, that disposition, that temperament that is one of anger and the lack of control. So just to re remind you, a fool is someone who does not follow the warnings and command of God, has no sense of control over his anger, lacks wisdom, has no concern for others, does not desire to avoid sin, and brags about his sinful actions. So how do you respond when you have lost some level of control of your anger? That's what you have to, you know. Why go through all of these examples without saying, okay, what am I going to do? It is something that I have to face. It's something that, that could occur to me. The first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge like Naaman did. We have to acknowledge the outburst like Peter did. We have to acknowledge even like Moses did, although there were still consequences. You have to make amends and ask for forgiveness. Peter wept bitterly. Naaman changed his mind and went and dipped in the waters. Moses acknowledged that he had done wrong, but it didn't change the consequences. You have to evaluate. How did this happen? You can look over the life of Saul and say, how did this happen? How did his anger keep growing to the point where he's willing to slaughter 85 men? Is there a pattern? Is there a pattern to the anger that you display? Is it the situation? Was it pride or selfishness or impatience? A lack of love? Or was it possibly too many cares of this world that got you so stressed out that you couldn't, you know, it came, became bottled up and then that expressed itself in terms of anger? You have to acknowledge, make amends, ask forgiveness, and then evaluate. But then most importantly at the end, you need to pray for strength. Pray for strength that you can control that emotion, that strong emotion that can cause so much damage. That we have so many examples that it can cause damage can cause damage to the point of wrath. We're in a world where we see the consequences of anger and wrath all the time. There's not a day goes by in this city where someone's not shot. There's not too many weeks go by that we get an Amber Alert on our phones where someone has been taken because there's a mother and a father that's been separated or something like that. There's not a day goes by where something violent doesn't occur out of anger a holiday season where something occurs at the mall. Anger surrounds us and is all around us. We should be different by our ability to control that, by our ability to recognize that, by our ability to strive to bring ourselves in compliance with God's will and God's way for how we should act with, amongst ourselves and towards other people. So let's not let that be a stumbling block for us in the concept of controlling our emotions. Because there will be a day of judgment. There will be a time when we will be fearing the Lord if we haven't done that. So we should. Now there are a lot of other emotions that we can discuss. And we can, but I thought you know, the, 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 the phrase that I was given for this lecture was to focus on controlling our emotions, specifically the concept of anger uh, uh, in the fear of the Lord. So I hope this has been beneficial. Um, Again, this is the passage we had earlier. 
Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. And all of these are about different emotions around whether it be good emotions or bad emotions. Uh, specifically, man, a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger and allays contention. So I thank you for listening. The best, well, you know, to me, one, the, the story of Naaman is one of the best examples of anger and wrath that leads to cleansing. I love the story of Naaman because it's an Old Testament example that previews of the concept of baptism. Baptism allows us to access uh, the blood of Christ. Baptism allows us to be buried with him as he was buried. We're buried in a watery grave of baptism. Naaman took his outburst and his pride and turned it into cleansing. Not just anger, but all of our sins. We can turn into cleansing. We can turn into salvation. We can turn into part of the fruits of the Spirit because we have Christ and the sacrifice that he was for us. At this time, we're going to offer a song of invitation for any who have not put on Christ, for any who would want to be cleansed in the watery grave of baptism so that they can access the blood of Christ and become one of his children. If you've become one of his children, but you've turned away, you've made a choice to, to, to not follow after him or you've made a choice to, to return to the world, you can still return to Christ. You can still be renewed. Uh, you can ask for his forgiveness and we can uh, offer prayers on your behalf. So if there's anyone subject to the invitation, please come as we stand and sing.